Well, it's my pleasure to be back with you once again. was here three weeks ago. Some of you remember me, and I will ever be known as Pastor Twinkie after that Sunday, because at least you were awake through that part of the sermon. Um, but it's, it's, it's my pleasure to be with you again. And uh, I don't know how many you know, times I'll get invited back, but just know this, because I understand where your church is and its journey and its quest of, of, of self-discovery during this season of its life, that, that every passage that we deal with and every outline that we, we complete as a part of our time together is designed specifically to speak to that about you and where you are in the hopes that the Lord will provide some insight and guidance to you. And so it's my pleasure to be a part of that journey. And so once again, I want to begin with, uh, with, with an image. And uh, some of you may be old enough and well-read enough that, that this may be familiar to you, the Rocket Chemical Company. Um, it was actually founded in 1953, and I'm happy to say that was actually before I was alive. Not much, but it was actually before I alive in the San Diego area to, to, um, to try to create some new anti-corrosives and uh, uh, rust preventative degreasers for the aerospace industry. Now, I'm a history guy. I didn't even know we had an aerospace industry in 1953, but apparently that's where it was located, and so they went into business in, uh, in, in that year. And I've got to get my, my timeline correct here. Um, after a few years, the, uh, well, they, they had worked through the, the, this chemical process to produce this product, and, and it was used on one of the Atlas rockets to protect the skin of that rocket going up. And the substance worked so well that the employees did what all good employees did. They lifted some and took it home with them, and they began to use it around their homes. I know that's been, been known to happen a few other times. And then in... Um, Toward the, late, the latter part of the 50s, the, the, the president of the company decided to take this, this substance and put it in an aerosol can because he thought it actually might work. And for the first time in 1958, it appeared on the store shelves in the San Diego area. And in 1960, they started out with three employees. In 1960, they expanded to seven employees. And by the end of that year, they were, they were selling 45 cases a week out of the trunks of their car to area businesses. In 1961, the first truckload of this product was shipped out of the state of California to Texas to the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Carla, some of you may remember that, to help in restoring cars after their flood damage. In 1968, it became a part of the care packages that were sent to Vietnam to help the soldiers there provide lubrication and rust prevention for their weapons. Um, and then in 1969, they finally changed their name to the single product that they created and that we know as WD-40. Did any of y'all know that story? Um, now, when I, when, I, when I was going back and, and reviewing this picture, I'm, I'm sort of a car guy too. And it's like, okay, do I recognize what those cars are in that picture? Um, I'm, we're not going to take this test right now, but I think I know what most of them are. The one in the middle, we know that's what? A Metropolitan, for those of you uh, Rambler, Rambler fans. Um, and, and the original can looked like this, and this is the one we came to know now. Now, do you know where it got its name WD-40? W means water. D stands for displacement. 40 is the number of experiments they had to go through to find a product that actually worked. Uh, I don't know about you, but that is persistence in engineering and product production. 
Um, we, we'll never know it as WD-30 or WD-25. It will always be WD-40. And I'm convinced that WD-40 is to the homeowner what duct tape is to rednecks. Would you agree with that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> One of my favorite historical characters, and I've, I've read and, and been through a lot of audio books, is, is this guy who obviously wasn't too full of himself, um, Albert Einstein. And out of all the things that he did, his, his Nobel Prize, and, and all the things he was a part of, the one quote that I will always remember him by is the one that I have heard in the most peculiar of environments. Uh, I have, my ministry in the past has involved dealing with a lot of people in, in recovery from addictions, primarily uh, drugs but some alcohol. And if you attend many of the rooms, you will hear Albert Einstein quoted. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me ironically that drug addicts are, are quoting a genius. And you know what the quote is that they use? The definition of insanity is to do the same things repeatedly and expect what? Different results. I relate to that. It's obvious that the founders of the Rocket Chemical Company, who produced WD-40, weren't doing the same thing 40 times. They tried something different along the way, the definition of insanity. The question for us in context is that over the 60-year history of this, this church family, from its founding until now, and where you find yourself in this season of God's purpose for you, um, are you simply, have you simply been doing the same things over and over, expecting to get a different result? I want us to look at a passage of Scripture out of Mark chapter 2. This also appears, the, the story appears in, in Matthew, but it also appears in Luke. But Mark, we know under the tutelage of Peter, most of his information came from Peter, is the one who gives the greatest, the greatest account. And in this account, it, it really addresses this issue about what it takes to really do the, the, the thing that God would have you to do to accomplish the purpose that you're convinced that, that you have if you're a believer, and that you have as a part of a church family what it takes. So follow along as, as we read this passage out of Mark chapter 2. When he, obviously Jesus, had come back from Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathering together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him in because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does, he, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, I don't know if you know that in his account, immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. 
And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, you know, we could actually paraphrase. I, I, I hadn't planned on doing this. We could actually paraphrase that last expression in, in what is known as the seven, last church, the seven last words of the church. And that is, we've never done it that way before, okay? <laughs> what are you laughing about? It's like, you, you can relate to that. Uh, we've never done it that way, so I guess you keep doing it the way you're doing it. It doesn't, doesn't work out. Anyway, I, I was struck by this account in, in my ongoing study in Scripture and reading about this very issue, this very subject, of, about whether I as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus, or whether the church, family, community faith that I'm a part of is really willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the purpose that we believe, whether we print it or not, our purpose is. Now, I, I think you and I would agree that, that one of the primary purposes of the church, and the church doesn't exist without what? Without us. We are the church. It's not this building. It's not this address. It's not this corporation. It's none of those things. It's, it's we who have made a faith commitment to Jesus as the Savior and Lord. That we would believe our purpose is that there are people that don't know God. <laughs> there are people that don't know Jesus and our primary responsibility is what? To make that introduction. To bring people to Jesus, or better still, to take Jesus to people that actually need Him. And so the question uh, really that's on the table right now is Highland Park Baptist Church doing whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. Am I doing, as the person I am and the skin that I wear, wherever I live and wherever I play and wherever I work and wherever I am, am I engaged in doing whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus? That's what this story is about. So let's take it apart. You should have an outline in your printed material there. You should have two, one on the front, one on the back. Is that there? Okay, good. The other one is for this evening, so you'll sort of have advanced head up about what we're covering. So let's fill in some blanks. Number one, it, it takes knowing who we are. Now, when we were here three weeks ago, um, I introduced to you the idea of a strategy for actually understanding Scripture. When you're reading a, a biblical narrative that's account about people and places and circumstances, I think a healthy exercise is for us to always ask the question, who in this story am I? You know, if it's one person in the story, then the question is, is that me? Uh, whether you want to take that person as Jonah, the question is, is that me? Or if the person happens to be Daniel, is that me? If there's more than one character in the story, then which of those characters do I best identify with? And in this particular account, uh, I've broken it down into, obviously, three categories of people here. And, and the question is, which are you in this story? Are you a, a family member? Are you a friend? Because... I don't know for whatever reason, and, and it depends on the translation, where it talks about Jesus not just being in a geographic location of Capernaum, but the description was he was at what? His home. Now, the word there is house. If you go back and read the first chapter and read the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, you'll see that Jesus had been in Capernaum before. He had been in Capernaum where he had been to Peter and Andrew's house, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. Obviously, they had a good working relationship, Peter and his mother-in-law. And, and it was believed by some that that home became then sort of a base of operation for Jesus. But he attracted so much attention that it really impeded his sense of purpose and call. 
Now, I don't know if you've, you've ever seen this breakdown in the three-year ministry of Jesus, but every year wasn't essentially the same. And we don't have a perfect timeline. My Bible didn't come with a timeline and say on year one, day one, this is what Jesus did and on this calendar. But we know that, that the ministry of Jesus was broken down into what a, a year of obscurity when he was unknown, a, a year of favor when he was popular, and then a year of adversity when he, he wasn't liked a whole lot by the establishment. So in this case, he returns from a, a preaching ministry. He's made the rounds, and he comes back to what a familiar place. It is known as the house where Jesus is to be found when he's in town. And so the people in this story, obviously, they're family members that, that live in the area. No doubt that you know Peter's there, and probably Peter's mother-in-law is there, and Andrew's there. So you have family and friends that are actually in this sea of people that are there when Jesus is teaching. You also have disciples. Um, you know, the question is, you know, who the disciples are. We, we don't have a reckoning of that in this account. But of out of all the people who were present in this moment when this took place, we know that some of them were among those who answered the call of Jesus. When he said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So there were family members and friends that may or may not have been disciples. There were distinctively disciples, people that heard the invitation. And let's give it to them. They were trying to figure out what that meant and what that looked like. I got to tell you, they, they didn't get it worked out until, well, what, after the crucifixion, because we know what happened there. And then the last, and, and I think this probably constituted a, a, a large group of the gathering there, there were the curiosity seekers. And you'll always have those where there's a fire, where there's an alarm, where there's something happened, where there's a buzz. And, um, and so Jesus comes back into town, he goes to the familiar place, and the word gets out that Jesus is back in town. This worker of miracles, this great teacher, this rabbi is back in town. And so people gather at this house. Now, we don't know what day of the week it is. We don't know what the time of the day is. But we know that Jesus is there. And we know that, by and large, the homes that people lived in back then weren't nearly as nice or nearly as large or nearly as well outfitted as the homes that you and I are blessed to be a part of. They were simple structures. Quite often they had a little courtyard out in front. And they would have one big room there that was used for the living room and a bedroom and everything else. And so we know that Jesus was, was in this house and he was teaching. And a crowd gathered so much that you couldn't get any more in people in the room. And remember this is before there is indoor heating and air conditioning. You, you don't have screens on the windows, and so the ventilation has got to be a challenge. People didn't bathe every day of the week. They wore long garments. I mean, we don't want to go into the, the... You get the idea. So anyway, so, so you have people that know him that are family or friends. You have his disciples who are there, a new chapter and a new day, and they're walking along with Jesus. And then you have this group of curiosity seekers. People have heard that they've heard that they've heard about this Jesus guy, and they show up to find out for themselves. So those are who are present when this event unfolds. The second is it takes determination and courage to do whatever it takes. It takes determination and courage. And that's where we're introduced to what? Four men. Now, um, three weeks ago when, when we were with you, we pointed out the sort of the interesting fact that in all of Scripture, how many of the accounts of people who play a substantial role in what happens there, we don't even have their names? <laughs> you know, three weeks ago, it was, what, four lepers outside of, uh, of Samaria. We don't know their names. They, they end up being the good guys. They were the bad guys who became the good guys and, 
and spared everybody because of what they did. We have that again. We have, we have four unnamed characters who will play a central role in this teaching moment with Jesus and become an example of doing whatever it takes to what? To bring somebody that needs Jesus to get them to Jesus. All right. Not easily discouraged. Let me go ahead and put both these up here, and then we'll flesh it out. Not easily discouraged, and then not bound by protocol. Not easily discouraged. So you have the word, the buzz is on the street. And in, in towns the size of, of, of Capernaum, towns and cities that time, everything traveled by word of mouth. We get that. And i got to tell you, that's a pretty fast medium. It's, it's remarkable how quickly the word can actually get around. And so the word had spread that Jesus is there. You have this group of people that are gathered there. They, they are, the room is filled. The courtyard is filled. They're looking through every window, and there's a crowd outside close enough to where you can hear what Jesus is saying, even if you're not tall enough to see over the heads. And then there are five other people in the story. There's the one guy who is a paralytic. We don't know the details of this, but we just know that he is a condition that he is basically helpless. He's at the mercy of people's mercy to get by. You know that people that, that have disabilities like that, they typically have atrophied limbs and muscles because they've not been able to use them. He is not able to, to get himself there. He's not, in, in, the word, in the medical community, he is non-ambulatory. Oh, that was a big word there. He's non-ambulatory. He can't get himself there. There's no one on planet Earth heretofore that is able to assist him in his problems. And he has four people who care about him greatly. They're not put off by his disability. They're not challenged by what he can't do. But these four at least have a hope, if not a conviction, that this strange new rabbinical teacher who's coming around and doing all kinds of miracles may just hold the key to the restoration of their friend. And so they go and they get him. They carry him. The word is described there as a pallet. I'm thinking it's probably more like a blanket. you got one on each corner bringing their friend to Jesus. And, and when they're coming up the street, they see this crowd gathered outside of the house. Now, I, when I was reviewing this last night and this morning, I got to think, okay, you have four people. You have four basic personality types. I don't know if you know this in psychology. You, you have sanguines, you have phlegmatics, you have clerics, and you have what? Melancholics. I don't know which you are. I'm sort of a melancholic cleric or a cleric melancholic. Well, anyway, you have four basic personality types. You have the fun-loving person, you know, that's the sanguine, happy, the party kind of guy. You've got the melancholic who's, who's perfectionist. I know you don't know any of those. Um, you, you've got the cleric who's the take-charge person. And you have the phlegmatic. Now, if you're a phlegmatic, you're going to describe yourself in a decidedly different way than if you're a cleric. Clerics think phlegmatics are just lazy. Um, phlegmatics are the ones that just don't get worked up about anything. You know, there's, it's, it's, it, it'll, it'll take care of itself, just don't get in a big rush. And I got to wonder, you have these four men, and they're coming to this environment of this context, and how they react to the fact that they can't even get close enough to get the man who needs Jesus into the presence of Jesus. And, and I got to wonder, is one of those four goes, oh, man, we can't do anything. We can't do the crowd we're just wasting our time. I, you know, maybe, maybe we can wait and catch Jesus at some other place and opportunity. Then you've got one of them, the, the thinker among them, who says, well, why, listen, 
Don't, don't write it off yet as not being able possible. Maybe there's another way to get in. We're looking at the street. We're out front of the house. Maybe there's another way. And so he probably said, hey, you go this way. You go that way. And come back and tell us what we ought to do. And, you know, they went and reconnoitered and then came back and said, hey, I saw a set of steps going from the courtyard up to the roof of the house. Maybe we can find some way to get in up there. You see... Doing what it takes means not being easily discouraged by circumstances that you didn't anticipate, circumstances that present an obstacle or a challenge. To do whatever it takes means, and if you're a cat lover, forgive me for this, but it's the expression we all know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Okay? Now, that's anathema to some of you. For some of you, it's a good way to spend your time. I'm not going to say who's who. Um, but in this case, you're not easily discouraged, and then you're not, you're not bound by protocol. And so they, they take this man, and they, they, they get into where they take these steps to go up on the roof. And what do they do when they get up on the roof? There's no opening there. There's no door. There's no skylight. These four men carrying their friend up on this, this roof. And somebody says, you know, I think Jesus is right over here. What does protocol say? This isn't your house, okay? This is not... All right, let me, let me go ahead and put these images up here to sort of help flesh the story out. And this lets you know a little bit more about me because I'm that guy who's wired to not quit, you know? Um, in, in, uh, I, I planted a church in Maryland in, in 1993, and, and, and God bless us, the thing just blew up, and we reached people enormously, and we moved from place to place and ended up a local high school. And, uh, and then we rented a, a, a shopping center down the street, and we were rehabbing the inside as a place to worship. And the school said, we're going to do maintenance during the summertime, so you're going to have to, you can't stay here. So I thought, fine, we just have a few more weeks of work, of construction to do, and we can move in. So we're going to do church outside. You know, we're going to go to the south lawn of the property. And so we moved outside in, in that, that, that May, and it turned out to be the hottest, driest summer in, in a lot of years. And and we went from 500 people in the air conditioning to 123 outside. So if you want to talk about fair weather saints, I know what that means, okay? And so we moved outside, and everybody was sort of giddy, and let's make this fun. But it got to be really hot, and the work wasn't getting done. And, and so I scavenged around. I found another church that had a, a tent that they had used for something that was in storage. And I drug that out, and we set up this circus tent. I mean, this really circus, 30 by, by 60. We set this thing up, and we're, we're, we're sort of like Jonah under the, under the, the vine, you know. We're, we're glad for the relief from the heat. Um, but summer rolled into fall, and fall rolled into winter, and, um, and, and this is, we could set up, yeah, we, we, we had, you know, stacking church chairs, and you could get 244 of those inside the tent, and still have room down at the front for, for me to preach, and for our worship team to set up that we had to do, um, and so we were out there. So anyway, I'm, I'm running permits for us to do this stuff. The work is going along tediously slow, and I discover in, in, along the way that in order to put up a tent in that county, you're supposed to have a permit, and in order to get that permit, you're supposed to have engineering drawings of how a tent is supposed to be set up. And in that county that was like a police state, I mean, they would shut you down and ticket you for anything. I'm going, oh, man, our goose is cooked. Maybe because we're behind the building that we're, we're sort of out of sight, out of mind. And so I'm down at the local permitting office one day, and I said, you know, I need this permit. And the lady behind the desk says, oh, you're the church that has that tent set up behind them. 
and I thought, oh, Lord, blind their eyes so they don't see it. Protocol says there are some things that you should do and some things you shouldn't do. But the sense of urgency of these friends to take a disabled friend into the presence of Jesus meant they dispensed with protocol. First, they, they started you know, pulling up the tile and digging until they found, you know, oh, there he is right now. But we need to make this hole big enough in somebody else's roof without a permit to do it. You see, they were willing to do whatever it took in violence of even protocol to get their friend to Jesus. For me, you know why we did that? In order to reach people for Jesus. I'm guessing in the 24 years I was there, we, 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 we baptized about 800 people. Bringing people to Jesus. And if, and if it took being in a tent outdoors in the wintertime, there were times when it was 23 degrees outside. And we'd set up those little torpedo heaters and warm up on the inside and then shut those off when everybody got in there. And we'd have it, those, enough body heat in there. It was 70 degrees except the ground was your feet always froze. But anyway, it's because I have this passion. Do what you have to do to get people to Jesus. And then finally it takes prioritization. Um, not easy word to say. It takes prioritization. It means you, you need to do the things you need to do in the important order, order that they need to be done. In dressing the bigger issue. So you can imagine the scene. Let your imagination work for you here. Here is Jesus inside sitting. And you've got people jammed in the room. Hanging out the windows in the door. Out in the courtyard. And he's teaching. We don't know. We don't, we don't even know what he's saying. Okay, That's not even part of the story. It's not germane to the story. But we just know they hear this what? This scratching sound. And I can imagine Jesus stopping. It's like when somebody's cell phone goes off in church. Blessed moments. Um, and they stop and, and then this little hole appears. And then the hole gets bigger. And debris starts falling down. And everybody clears, you know, they're squeezing back. And, uh, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets big enough to lower a body through. And so here comes this pallet being lowered on its four corners. I don't know how they manage that. I'm, you know, my mind's working, going, okay. So they lower this body down. I'm thinking the four men that are there to help, they're still on the roof. They don't come down in the room because they, they, they've already had the Jesus encounter. Their friend has not. They lowered him down, and Jesus has stopped teaching him. And Jesus is smart enough to know, you know something? There's seriously wrong here. This man, you could look at his withered body and see that he had not walked in a long time if he had ever walked. And Jesus interrupted his storytelling to stop and look at that man who is nameless and say, friend, your biggest issue isn't the fact that you can't walk. <laughs> your biggest issue is that you have sin in your life. Jesus prioritized the man's problems and addressed the most important issue first. And he said, your sins are forgiven. Because even though it was four friends that were bringing him, this man had to agree to be brought. This man had to agree to believe that Jesus could possibly be the answer to his needs, to be lowered into the pressure of Jesus. And so... In addressing the bigger issue which Jesus did. Then in not being deterred by opinions. Now among those curiosity seekers. 
you have what? You have the religious elite who are there. These are the, the, the uh, we call them the church police, uh, the religious establishment police that happened. You know, they got there early enough. Uh, they got there early enough to get the best seats in the house. And, and so they're right there in the midst when all this is going on. And the little gears in their head are just clicking away. And the only person in the house who can hear that clicking is Jesus. And what did they say in their hearts? What, what did he just say? Did he say, your sins are forgiven? Who does he think he is? We all know that only God can forgive sins. He's guilty of blasphemy. And as those thoughts are registering in their minds, we read the passage, Jesus heard their thoughts. <laughs> and I, I, I love the fact that, you know, I think Jesus had the gift of sarcasm at times. I'm, I'm, I'm good believing that. I'm a little partial to that myself, so I want to think that Jesus was like that. And, and I think you get a little of that note in this, in this moment when Jesus, knowing their thoughts, speaks aloud and addresses those thoughts and says, Let's see, you, you think it's, it's easier to heal a man physically than to heal them spiritually. But just so that you know, that the Son of Man can forgive sins. He turns the guy, he says, okay, show them something. Just get up, take up your, your, your pallet, and go. And this man was strengthened in his body by the word of Jesus, and he got up. You talk about violating protocol? Listen, he got up in the middle of Jesus' church service. He interrupted Jesus' sermon, number one. And then when Jesus told him, he got up, rolled up his mat, and he left before they had a benediction. He didn't wait for the final closing prayer. He did something that wasn't on the order of service. He got up in response because the opinions of people when it comes to the work of God have to just simply be ignored to do what it takes. And then finally, acting without the approval of the establishment. Acting without the approval of the establishment. Jesus did that. By number one, saying your sins are forgiven. He didn't have that, that permission. And you read enough of the gospel account, you know that he didn't have permission to even tell anybody to walk. He didn't have permission to tell anybody to roll up their mats. As a matter of fact, he spent a lot of his time in trouble. In trouble because he did that when on the Sabbath day of all times. When people are supposed to encounter God, they're just not supposed to encounter God that way. And the man got up and rolled up his mat. And, and, and you can believe this man who had spent his whole life perhaps paralyzed, he was grinning from ear to ear. And there's no doubt that he may even have recognized the faces of some of those scribes who were appalled at what had happened. And he took special pleasure at looking at them and smiling and rolling up that mat and putting it on his shoulder. You know, did he look up through the hole at his four friends and goes... And walked out of the crowded house and went his way. You see, in order to do whatever it takes to bring people that need Jesus to Jesus, is you need to be willing to act 
without the blessing or the approval of the establishment. Uh, I don't know if we have any football fans here. Uh, we're not going to give you a test on this, but um, uh, Brad, Brad Robinson. I anybody know what he's most famous for? December the 25th, 1905. Professional football was in its infancy. And we know that football was what? It, it had... Um, it started out as rugby, uh, and, 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 and it was Americanized, and we made it into sort of what we know as football. And at that point in time, the strategy in football was not unlike that of rugby. It was known as three yards and a cloud of dust. <laughs> who, had the body, who had the bodies who could move the ball and the bodies at the same time? And there was a coach who decided the rules did not prohibit doing something different in order to win the game. And so on December the 25th, 1905... Brad Robinson threw the first forward pass in football. <laughs> okay? Listen to what the New York Times had to say about this. The passing was more of the character of that familiar in basketball than that which hitherto characterized football. Apparently, it is the intention of the football coaches to try repeatedly these frequent, long, and risky passes. Well executed, they are undoubtedly highly spectacular, but the risk of dropping the ball is so great as to make the practice extremely hazardous and its desirability doubtful. The establishment said it's cute, but it's not practical. Now watch this video as we bring this sermon in for a landing, um, and you Dallas haters relish in this moment. Odell Beckham, I hate your guts, Jr. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. In 2014, a man using three fingers and a thumb caught a pass that you're not supposed to be able to. It's called the fourth greatest reception in NFL history. Uh, frankly, I think it has to be number one because, you know, help beat the Cowboys. But what in, in 1905 was said to be impractical? You and I would not enjoy the game today if it did not involve passing. You wouldn't get drafted as a quarterback if you couldn't effectively throw the ball. The question for us in context and for you personally is if we believe that there are people that need Jesus in our lives, if this church believes that there, there are people within the scope of this ministry that needs Jesus, are we willing, are you willing to do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus no matter what somebody else thinks. I want you to bow your heads. Because this is the time for you to, to ask the Lord to help you be honest with yourself. You know, are you willing, have you been willing, is this church willing to do that next thing that perhaps it has never done before in order to have that success of seeing the paralytic walk, the man forgiven of his sins, that he might be made whole because he has had an encounter with Jesus in an unorthodox way. So you ask that question, ask the Lord, reveal to me, am I willing to surrender myself to you, to follow your leading, to do whatever it takes to bring people 
to Jesus. If you've never had that encounter yourself, perhaps you've never been the man that friends have brought to Jesus, then, then that's the only business you need to think about. And what you need is you don't need to be physically healed, you need to be spiritually healed. And Jesus died on the cross to make that possible for you. And what you need to do is be willing to come and say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and rose for my justification. I offer myself to you as a disciple. So those around you are taking care of their business and you can conduct your business with God. Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that there have been men and women over the course of history who were so consumed with their concern about somebody they knew and loved that it didn't matter what anybody else said or did. They were going to do whatever it took to bring them to you. That, Father, that we are personally the product of somebody else caring enough that we might be introduced to you. So, Father, in this moment of our response, help us to be honest about our willingness to be like those four men, personally, and then Highland Park as a church, to follow the leading of your Spirit and to do whatever it takes that men might know you. And, Father, for that person today that perhaps for the first time in their lives admits they need Jesus and they want Jesus, they submit themselves to be his disciple, that you hear their prayer and you touch them and transform them to make them like you. Father, we offer ourselves to you during this time of commitment. It's in Jesus' name we pray for his sake.